This is Jason Holleran. I proudly served for 33 years, culminating as the Deputy Commandant at West Point. Put this on your calendar. World War II weekend inside Old Bethpage Village Restoration on Long Island. Scores of operational vintage armor in formation May 18th and 19th. Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman invites you to join him in saluting America's greatest generation and all those who have worn the uniform in defense of our freedoms. That's May 18th and 19th, presented by the Museum of American Armor. This is the other side of midnight. I'll tell you, as uh, long as I've been uh, old enough to understand what uh, television news is, I have looked up to and admired Marvin Scott. Uh, Marvin Scott has more titles than we can list in the course of a four-hour program. These days, he's uh, the senior correspondent for PIX11 here in New York. He has been uh, a print journalist. He's been a photographer. He is a, a, a veteran broadcast journalist with at least 11 Emmy Awards with, uh, I guess, over 60 years of experience, at least over 50. Also the author of, of the book, As I Saw It. Uh, very, very pleased to welcome uh, senior correspondent for PIX11, Marvin Scott. Marvin, thanks so much for joining me. Well, Frank, thank you. It's so good to be with you, and thank you for that wonderful introduction i said did i do all that wow that was <laughs> well great. all, all, and all that great, and a lot more <laughs> it was great hearing up andrew just before that because i remember very well the day he was born because i was working with his mother donna hanover uh, at wpix we were co-anchoring the midday edition program so it was very interesting hearing him and uh, hearing his uh, political aspirations. That's funny. If he gets elected governor, I'm guessing he's the first governor you would have known since birth. <laughs> you could say that, yeah. Uh, now, <laughs> you have covered, uh, Marvin, uh, over the years, a lot of very tough events. You know, assassinations of presidents, uh, race riots, uh, space shuttles blowing up, all sorts of crime, more crime than I can even list, thousands of different crimes. Um, my my question really, though, is when it comes to an event like we saw in in Texas and people are relying on folks like you to get the facts out, how do you maintain your composure? I mean, there's one event in particular back in 1984, uh, a McDonald's massacre, which is eerily similar to what's happened in Texas. And I know you had just finished covering the Democratic National Convention in San Francisco. That's the convention where Mario Cuomo made his famous speech. And then you got word that you had to go to this, um, you know, to San Diego to cover this horrible story. What happened in that particular story back in 1984? And in general, how does one maintain your composure as a journalist when you're still human and you can't help but being moved by what you're seeing? All of the above, Frank, all of the above. The, the shooting, which I title in my book, uh, he went to shoot humans. Um, it was the deadliest mass shooting in U.S. history at that time. Uh, back in 1984, I was covering the Democratic Convention in San Francisco. Governor Mario Cuomo was the keynote speaker. And shortly after that, uh, my news director reached out to me and said, get on the next plane. I said, where am I going? He said, San Ysidro, which was a suburb of uh, San Diego, right near the Mexican border. And uh, there had been a shooting at McDonald's. By the time I got there, the death toll was 21 dead five children, 19 wounded. The man, the shooter, was identified as uh, James 
uh, James Huberty, uh, and he was armed to the hilt, uh, had an Uzi machine gun, a 12-gauge shotgun, semi-automatic pistol, and when they counted all the rounds, he had shot 245 rounds, killing 21 dead, including those five children. So how do you cover it? You stand there, you shake your head in disbelief, and you gather you gather the information. You hear what the law enforcement people are saying, and with heavy heart, you report that without showing any of the emotion or your inner feelings. Uh, and I have to tell you, it is, it's heartbreaking, and we feel the same emotions that the people who are listening to my report are feeling, the same feelings I had when I learned today that uh, there were so many people killed in, in this Texas massacre. Um, this man was angry to the world. He walked out of his home telling his wife he was going out to hunt humans. That was a quote from his wife. And uh, he walked into McDonald's about 4 o'clock in the afternoon when it was crowded, a lot of kids coming out of school, and uh, three of them rode on a bicycle. He shot through the pane glass window, killed two of them. One of the boys, I'm trying to remember his name, I think it was Coleman, who survived by, by playing dead. And I got to interview him in the hospital a day or two later. Uh, it was just an awful scene. Even when I got there, the crime scene had not been cleared yet. And uh, yeah, I have heavy emotions. I've seen this. I've seen my share of shootings, um, individual killings, mass killings like this one. Again, 21 killed and, and the, the coverings in front of that McDonald's were but just daunting to see. Interesting fact, his 12-year-old daughter was watching all of this from a friend's apartment, not knowing her father was doing the shooting. And uh, I remember days later going to uh, the funerals, and I was in a church. You asked about emotions. And I was in the church, and I was in, I think, the second pew, these five white caskets in front of me of the children. And at one point, during the Mass, we're asked to join hands in a sign of peace. And a chill came over me. It really did. And at that moment, as I clasped hands with someone sitting next to me, I, at that moment, I was no longer a reporter. I was a mourner. And I really felt it. And uh, in the evening, I remember I went with a colleague. We just had to get away from it. Went across the border in the Tijuana. I had a couple of tequilas and watched the sunset trying to. But yes, we are impacted by what we see, impacted by the horrors that go on, and the shootings still occur. This is 80, 1984, so this is, what, 38 years right. later, another mass shooting. 21 dead then. What do we have? The latest count is, what, 20 dead now? Yeah, I, I think it's 21 dead here as well, uh, 19 children and uh, two teachers. Really, uh, really horrific. If people are just tuning in, by the way, we're talking with Marvin Scott. You can still see him regularly as a senior correspondent on PIX11 and uh, also hosts a terrific program on there on the weekend, one of the best uh, interview programs around. Marvin, um, whenever I've uh, talked to you in person or on the radio over the years or whenever I've read your book or heard you on other programs, 
I'm just always amazed uh, at the sheer breadth of the stories and the volume of the news events that you've covered over the years. Now, I indicated when I was introducing to you that I'm not quite sure whether your your career spans 50 years, 60 years, or even more. I know your career began when you sold a photograph of a of a fire to the New York Daily News. How long have you been a journalist in in, in, in New York and in general? I will hit six decades. Yes, 60 years. Uh, so of course I started when I was five. <laughs> um, yeah. 60 years. Uh, that story you're talking about at the age of 14, uh, yeah, I got my feet wet. I was a, a photo buff, uh, but passion for photography, which I still have today. And uh, I was doing my homework and watching The Tonight Show with Steve Allen. Boy, is that dating me. Uh, and I suddenly heard sirens, and I looked out the window, and it was about 11 at night. Night had turned to day. It was so bright. And there was this inferno just around the corner from my home in the Bronx. I grabbed my camera. People didn't hear the fire engines. They heard my, uh, my dash, me dashing down the stairs. So quickly getting to this the scene, I got there just as the fire trucks were arriving, and the hose wasn't fully positioned yet. So I got a limp hose going to one of these 12 windows belching flames, and uh, I got this great picture of the fire. And the Daily News then encouraged people, you have a picture, as we do in television today, a video, reach out to us. So they said, bring your picture in. Get, come on down. I took the subway down to 42nd Street. They handed me a $2 messenger fee. I handed my negatives, and I held with bated breath until the next day when the Bulldog Edition came out. And there was my picture, a quarter of the centerfold with a credit line and I'll tell you, but going down to the newspaper and being in the newsroom and feeling the, the, the whole excitement there. And then, but actually, when I got back to my building, a block and a half where the fire, from the fire, all my neighbors were there. And Marvin, what happened? So you could say that was my very first newscast at the age of 14. <laughs> That's how that all And the interesting thing, Frank, back then I was 14 and I went to the Daily News building. Where do you think I've been working for the past 42 years? <laughs> the Daily News Building. That's the wild. That, that's <laughs> why, hey, you know, I've said before on this radio show that when it comes to anything that's in the media, especially the, the public eye, whether you're talking being a musician, an actor, a broadcast journalist on television, a radio commentator, by far the most difficult thing is longevity. Uh, give us, while well, no one's listening, Marvin, and it's just you and me, give me the secret <laughs> to your longevity. How does one make a successful career as a, you know, as, a, as a news anchor and reporter for six decades? Two words. Be honest. Never lose the integrity and be honest in your reporting. You know, I, I still stick to the, uh, I think it was Rudyard Kipling who said, uh, they taught me this in journalism school, uh, I have, uh, uh, what, five faithful serving men, and the maxim is who, what, when, where, who, uh, missing one, who, what, where, when, and why. Stick to that. Tell the story. Don't embellish it. Don't have opinions about it. And that is what kept me going for 60 years in the news business. I will not deviate from it. I will not 
talk about political or political opinions. People will never know and have never known whether I'm right, left, or center. As I said to Larry King when he was promoting my book, he asked me about a political question, and I said, Larry, I have survived in this business for all these years because I've never said publicly <laughs> where I stand politically. Want to have a couple of beers down the block? And he laughed. And, was, uh, well, so that's so interesting, Marvin, because you turn on especially cable news these days, but increasingly even on broadcast network news as well, and you see all sorts of people giving their opinion on every aspect of politics, whereas your style 30, 40, 50 years ago was the the norm. You'd go to any news broadcast on radio or television, and you wouldn't hear any of these anchors injecting their own political opinion. Do you think it was better back then when folks didn't inject opinion into delivering news broadcasts? Yes and no. Let me explain that. There are I think there is too much opinion news today. And I think that is what you have in Fox, and that's what you have in MSNBC. They are commentary stations. People do voice their opinions. You're on the right or the left. I tell people, you want to get an honest feeling? Listen to a half hour of Fox and a half hour of MSNBC. I'll tell you, the best place to get objective news is local news. We tell you the who, what, when, where, why. We give you the facts and we don't embellish it. That is is something that we really abide by at, at PIX11 News. We give you the facts. We will not go and we will, for example, if, if there's uh, um, information that comes out about a crime or something and there's information filtering, we will not go with that story until we have official confirmation from a police uh, source or an election, we will not go with any information until it comes from the Associated Press. And uh, we stick to that. And I, you know, we also have a network uh, uh, at uh, Nextar, which is uh, the owner of uh, Pix11 News. Uh, they have News Nation, where you get the news straight and forward. Mm. And that is the way it is today. I think a lot of it, too, is coming through. What has changed has been social media. I saw a survey that had been taken a number of years ago and it said that 66% or 62% of the people who were polled said they got their news from social media. 44% claimed they got it from Facebook alone. So that, that's what changed everything. Uh, there is too much opinionated news, but if you want that, there's a place to go for it. You want straightforward news? Go to local news. I'm so glad you mentioned the importance of local journalism. Uh, One of the things that's been very frustrating to me, quite frankly, until John Katsimatidis bought this radio station, is New York, one of the most interesting cities in the world, if not the most interesting, used to have very robust local radio programming, both talk programming and news programming, even local entertainment programming. And really, until John changed the whole format of this station, that was totally lacking, almost totally lacking in New York. You alluded to the Daily News earlier. I pick up the Daily News on a Sunday now. It takes me all of eight minutes to read all of the original reporting because there's so few articles. I call that paper the incredible shrinking newspaper, my hometown paper, the Staten Island Advance, the same thing. Uh, 
you, I think, made the point about why local journalism is so important. Do you see in this era of social media and different ways that people are accumulating news and distributing the news, do you see any hope for local journalism in the future? I think that is the future. You want the news? You want to get it straight? Go to local news. Here we have in New York, we have five, six channels. Channel 11, I'm very proud to be a part of that team. Uh, this is my 42nd year at, uh, at Channel 11. And I've been there since uh, 19, yeah, 1980 I started. And uh, I've, I've watched us grow as a team. And I also, I look at the competition too. You know, you've got two, four, five, seven, and nine. And, and the news is presented straight, factually, as factual as you can get it. Uh, and, and not embellished with, with opinions. You got your opinion at the, the other stations, and you get your packs at the local stations. That's, mm. that's my feeling, and I'm very – I have – I tell you, I, I put together – I have a note in front of me uh, – the five commandments for good journalism. Want to hear them? Yes. Okay. That thou shall be honest and objective. Thou shall be skeptical and prepared to challenge. Thou shalt check the facts and verify with sources. Thou shalt tell at least two sides of the story. There shall never be compromise or influence on how to tell the story. And I've abided by that. Wow. Almost, wow. Are years. those commandments that you've written or, or acquired from, from Mount Olympus or something? No, I, <laughs> no, I haven't come down with the tablets. <laughs> I was thought I wrote an article uh, on journalism several years ago, and, and that's what I came up with. And that's basically, I think that is the policy I adhere to, uh, and that's the way I tell my stories. Just get it straight, Marvin. Get it straight. Uh, and I'm a story. I characterize myself as a storyteller. And over the years, I have calculated that I've told in excess of 15,000 wow. stories, wow. maybe in the course of that time, 30,000 interviews those in-studio and outside the daily coverage of, of news events. If so, he, uh, yeah. No, that, I mean, it's really incredible. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Marvin Scott. He's a senior correspondent with PIX11. You can also see him on the weekend on Channel 11 as the host of PIX11 News Close Up. You know, you mentioned uh, covering 15,000 stories, probably far more, doing at least 30,000 interviews. About five years ago, you chose uh, 57 or 58 of these stories to uh, of the, your most memorable moments in journalism to chronicle in a terrific book, which I read at the time, as I saw it, A Reporter's Intrepid Journey. I'm sure the idea of writing a book had crossed your mind at various times uh, in your in your career as a journalist. What made you five years ago decide now's the time to sit down and memorialize these 60 or so stories that are particularly noteworthy for you? Well, I, I have to tell you, I have to say one of your colleagues encouraged me repeatedly. Rita Cosby, who's oh. a dear friend, she encouraged said, Marvin, you've got to write that book. You've got to write that book. <laughs> she kept after me. I knew I wanted to do this. It had been on my on my list for many, many years, a desire to write a book. And I put together a compilation of stories. The, the, the more unique ones, I think I, I put in there about 25 of the more unique stories from uh, playing Cupid to the crazy, craziest love story to the night I spent in the house in Amityville 
the bravest person I ever met who was a 12-year-old girl in need of the heart and touched mine, uh, or, or the story about the ransom where the FBI got the ransom before me hmm. in a kidnapping case where the kidnappers were arrested, but uh, they never had the ransom, which was picked up by two railroad workers after it was dumped from a trestle in Jersey. <laughs> and they, they, they suddenly got caught up in this crime, and the U.S. attorney in New Jersey said whoever got that ransom was going to be as culpable as the actual kidnappers. They panicked. They didn't know what to do with it. They wanted to give the money back. I got a call from a lawyer one day. He said, Marvin, I'm representing these two guys who got the money. They, they want to get out of it. If we dropped it somewhere, would you pick it up and give it to the FBI? <laughs> True story. I said, absolutely. What a great story to tell, right? So the FBI got the money, got the ransom before me. I got a call a couple of days later after they caught up with these guys. And uh, Jay Wale LaProd, who was the agent in charge in New Jersey at the time, I knew him, called me and said, Marvin, why do I find your business card on one of these guys? I told him <laughs> the story. Somebody said, you got the ransom before me, and I explained the story. <laughs> that was that was interesting. Uh, anyway, absolutely, uh, absolutely. Uh, by the way, if people want to get the book, is again, it's called As I Saw. It's still available on Amazon and a variety of other sources. Uh, Marvin, you mentioned being with uh, PIX11 for the last four decades or so, but a lot of our listeners remember you from your time at Channel 5 uh, immediately before that, and for a few of those years anyway, you were colleagues with uh, another legendary local journalist, Gabe Pressman. Now, anybody that would watch God the bless. news at um you know at uh, the 10 o'clock news at channel 5 knew what station they were watching because it would always begin this way it's 10 p.m. do you know where your children are marvin do you have any idea what the um what the idea was behind doing that at 10 p.m. every day i mean did did the local uh, station manager think that if if parents were all of a sudden reminded to look for their children, that there'd be fewer vagrant children on the street? As somebody that heard that probably 4,000 times in your career, what was the impetus for the beginning of it's 10 p.m., do you know where your children are? To be honest with you, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I knew but I'd was, find a way to stump it, you. It, uh, you got me stumped on that one, but it was catchy. It was immediately identifiable with Channel 5. So people heard that. They knew they were on Channel 5, but it wasn't Channel 7 or Channel 11. So it was catchy. But the, what motivated it? I don't know. Uh, in your book... One, one, one question I don't know how to answer. I love it. I knew I was going to find a way to stump you. In your book, you spent a lot of time talking about the the spaced program. You write uh, that in the 80s, you were very, very close to doing something that I've always longed to do, and that's uh, go to space as a journalist. Mm -hmm. Now, long before they were flying um, William Shatner and, um, you know, the Michael Strahan to, to space on these Blue Origin flights for 17 seconds, you narrowly missed the opportunity to be selected for something called the Journalist in Space program. I was a little embarrassed that I didn't know anything about this prior to reading your book. For people that, like me, didn't know anything about this, what was the Journalist in Space program, and how come you ended up spending all of your six decades in journalism on this Earth instead of a few minutes in space? (laughs) I would have loved to have that seat Michael Strahan had. 
Yes, I I was desirous to go into space and still am. Uh, if you're listening at NASA, <laughs> I'm willing to go up tomorrow. Uh, what happened then? They had a civilian uh, civilian in space program. Uh, the first one was the teacher, Krista McCullough. Uh, that was on the Challenger, I believe. Um, I want to make sure I have my facts. Yeah, no, that was the Challenger, Uh, absolutely. Challenger. Yes, I know Challenger and Columbia uh, had those fatal uh, disasters. Uh, So they had the civilian space program, and I believe an attorney was, was earmarked to go up, after the teacher and then a journalist and they put out uh, the call for journalists interested in applying for it i applied and uh, i made the first cut when you use the word narrow i don't know how narrow it was i think walter cronkite was ahead of me and uh bergen uh from uh, the abc news uh but i have the certificate they said i made the first cut of the civilian in the space program as the journalist who would go in space. I had to write an essay. Uh, I believe uh, Congressman Mario Biagi then wrote a recommendation for me. I had the uh, the editor of Parade Magazine wrote a, a letter for me. I had all the right stuff in there, plus my essay of what I would do in space and how I would describe what I saw and how I felt at that moment. I think it would have been an absolutely, well, forget the, Pun out of this world experience, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know I enjoy describing things. When I when I do things for print, I, I like being descriptive, and I try to be descriptive too when I'm describing things in my television reports. So that would have given me an opportunity to really describe what it was like and how it felt. And so sadly, they eliminated the civilian space program after that. Uh, that Challenger disaster, which I, I covered extensively down at the Space Center. And uh, yeah, it was an awful time. I spent a lot of time uh, covering the space program, going back to uh, uh, the early days after Mercury. And I was with a mutual radio network at that time. And I watched the rollout of the, uh, uh, the Saturn rockets. And I, I witnessed about uh, probably eight or nine launches. Um, I was there for the Apollo 11 that went to the moon. Uh, I was there for the first uh, uh, launch of the space shuttle, Columbia, and it was just an awesome experience. Everything, when I say in my book, the title Intrepid Journey, it certainly has been an intrepid journey, and it's uh, it's been an education as well as everything else, and just such wonderment to be able to meet the people and go to places where I've been, some wonderful, some hazardous, but hey, it's all part of being a journalist, and I've been fortunate. Well, that's great. Uh, Marvin, uh, there's a ton of stories I want to ask you about, but unfortunately, we're just about out of time. But before I let you go, I uh, you are the, the grand poobah over at the Friars Club. I'm not sure if your current title is prior or abbot or uh, <laughs> grand high exalted leader. But uh, Thursday uh, night, you, the Friars Club is doing their um, first testimonial dinner in a while f- at the Ziegfeld honoring Tracy Morgan. Uh, that's got to be pretty exciting. It is. I, I am. I am the uh, what they call the prior vice president, Arthur Idella, attorney Arthur Idella is our uh, uh, dean. Not familiar. And uh, so yes, we are having after our two-year hiatus, uh, thanks to the pandemic, we are holding our first big event, our testimonial dinner for Tracy Morgan, 
Uh, and we have about 500 people who will be coming to the Ziegfeld Ballroom. And uh, this is not a roast. We do plenty of those. But this is a tribute to a man who is an extraordinary comedian, a man who has survived such a horrible, horrific uh, auto accident a couple of years ago. And uh, we're, we're very pleased to be doing that. Well, so that's great. Back. The Friars Club is up and running. And regardless of what any of the naysayers might be saying, we're there. And it's the most, it is the best entertainment, the premium entertainment club in the world. And we've been around for over 110 years. Marvin, I'll look forward to seeing you there. I like that the event is early enough that the two of us can share a martini and I can have a few hours to sober up to be on the radio at one. Thanks so much for joining me. I know it's a late night, and I hope we'll do this again soon. Okay, Frank. Thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Have a a good rest of the morning. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Marvin Scott, the great Marvin Scott. See him every weekend on Channel 11. You can also check out his book, As I Saw It. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 8 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.